Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about debilitation. So far in the history of inappropriate conversations, I've never lost a show or was unable to record or had to kick something to a different time period due to illness. There have been periods in time when I've had things lined up for a particular point in the year that I've instead decided I wasn't quite ready to speak to and and shifted for that reason, or some news of the day has crept in and taken the place of a topic. That's happened before, and and I'm you know the kind of person who doesn't usually go more than a year without getting some sort of cold or something along those lines. And I'm fighting with a cold right now, but I'm recording. And it dawned on me that in five years, because March 7th was the fifth year anniversary of the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, I haven't actually lost a show or missed a week for the reason of having to deal with some sort of physical problem, some sort of illness, any sort of mild, small-scale debilitation. And it's kind of ironic that I'd be thinking about that today, because the topic of the show today is going to be exactly that, um, debilitation, just kind of as a concept. And I like the way it ties into our different drummer, so at any moment I could just shift into the different drummer and spend a big chunk of the show there. But at first, though, I want to talk about a different kind of angle on the question of debilitation a little bit. And just sort of mention right up front that the only loose tie-out I'm going to make between this current events segment at the beginning of the show and the topic itself is the notion of the Americans with Disabilities Act. One of the hardest things for a uh, retail store, for example, to deal with is Americans with Disabilities Act. That was a real struggle when it passed two-plus decades ago. In terms of, if you're a store where you're you're set up in a particular space, the store that I worked in for most of the years that I was in stores was a very small location, uh, not much more than 2,000 square feet, which by record store standards, for those people who can still remember record stores, is tiny. And so in trying to make the best uh, inventory usage, display the most product you can, in an area as tight as that, it's always the risk that your aisle size isn't going to be as big as it otherwise could be. And until we remodeled that store, my aisle sizes were probably too small to be compliant with ADA. Now, it just turned out to be a, a good thing from a timing perspective that uh, when I first started, there was no such thing as the American with Disabilities Act. And by the time that law came around, we were already making plans to do that remodel, just to upgrade the look of the store. There was no reason for the store that I was in to want to move locations or shift into a bigger spot, because even though the store's size was probably too tiny and our sales per square foot metric was arbitrarily high for that reason, it wouldn't have made sense to move to a less opportune part of the mall I was based in just to get more space, because we were sitting in a very good location, close to an external exit, right across from the food court, two doors down from the movie theater, game arcade across from that, we were in a, in a very good spot. But ADA did force stores to rethink their use of fixturing or at the time of Christmas or you know that high holiday Thanksgiving to Christmas period. How did you use bulk out space? Where did you put additional fixtures to hold stuff like Christmas music? Because it was going to be a problem for your store to not be wheelchair accessible. 
And the other you know, thing that stores have had to deal with here in the last maybe 15 years is open carry laws, where if you're a church, for example, or again, a retail store that is committed to not having weapons uh, in your store, uh, one of the things that the open carry law, I joke, the open carry laws that were passed in many states, including states I lived in, were doing little more than actually create a lot of business for sign printing companies, that the biggest output was not that there were a lot of citizens in the state I lived in who were being extremely disadvantaged by not being able to carry their gun in an unconcealed way wherever they went, because I didn't see much impact after the law was passed in terms of it didn't start looking like the Wild West all of a sudden, in other words. But what you did see is a lot of businesses suddenly posting signs in their front window and later on their websites declaring what their official policy was because you had to post a sign if you were not going to, if you're going to declare an exception to an open to carry law. This ties in with one of the more impressive news stories that I've seen in quite some time. In fact, I saw it just at the end of this week when I'm recording. For the better part of a year now, many states in the conservative part, the religious right prominent part of the United States, have been wrestling with the idea of passing laws to guarantee what I would describe as a business's right to discriminate against anybody that they wanted to. Basically, a right to discriminate against gay people law being passed in a lot of states. And I spoke to it a little bit more than a year ago on a blog article at www.inappropriateconversations.org. That article, I think, was just titled, What Would Jan Brewer Do? Kind of mixing together the what would Jesus do cliché with the then-governor of Arizona, Jan Brewer, and the decision she had to make about whether to veto one of those laws. But the funny thing is, you veto one of those laws, they just turn around and come back, because people who were obsessed with making sure that, in a sort of a twisted misinterpretation of Christianity, that as Christians they should not have to have contact with or provide um, services to anybody that has uh, a different worldview than theirs. Um, The reason I call it ironic is that Jesus essentially in every single one of the Gospels, and example after example, is shown as going into places intentionally and willfully where he was interacting with people who did not model their moral behavior along the lines that Jesus did, who had come pretty far astray from what the religious and political leaders of Jesus' time would have recommended. And oftentimes in Gospel passages, it comes up that Jesus is called out for having the gall to interact to eat with these people. Uh, these are these are sinners. These are tax collectors and women of ill repute. And what are you doing even being seen with them, much less sharing a meal with them? And Jesus's attitude was, this is what I'm here to do. I have come to reach out to the people who have been shunned by the political and religious leaders of our time. And yet here we've got people who, in the name of Jesus Christ, at the legislative level of a dozen or more states, trying to legislate exactly the things that Jesus modeled the behavior. In other words, they've cast themselves in the role of Pharisee, which in some ways I suppose is incredibly honest of them, because in in a modern paradigm, if you advance the gospel message forward, these people are not Christ followers in any sense of the word, despite using the word Christian very aggressively. They're the Pharisees. Well, one of those Pharisees had his bluff called uh, this week in, in Oklahoma, uh, reading from a story that I just happened to find today on GayStarNews.com. I'm sure I could find the story elsewhere. In the middle, the second paragraph begins this way. Earlier this year, Republican State Representative Chuck Strom introduced his Oklahoma Religious Freedom Act, H. Bill 1371. If passed, 
This would allow businesses to deny services to customers if they felt that such services were against the person's religious beliefs, quoting the act. The bill was aimed to allow businesses such as cake makers and florists the freedom to decline providing services for same-sex weddings. Breaking away from the article for just a second, this is really one of the things that I think has probably become the dominant response among conservative state and local political officials trying to stem the tide of what they see as the mistake of same-sex marriage by trying to find other ways of allowing open rebellion against it. And I think with the possible exception of the state of Alabama, I think most of these states realize that they're not going to be able to ignore the court rulings or the will of the people in certain in certain of those states. And if the law of the land has shifted to where we're no longer providing any sort of litmus test for two people who want to make a lifetime commitment to each other, then what do they do? Well, one of the things that they can do is is to try to find ways to prevent the local uh, court clerks from issuing licenses, but that's likely to lead to, perhaps even could eventually in Alabama, lead to a federal takeover of the state government. To me, the comparison would be the 1950s case about school integration, where Eisenhower had to send in the National Guard to deal with then-Arkansas Governor Favis' decision to prevent any black students from going to any of the quote-unquote white schools. Well, in this case, this bill was undercut in a way that I'm so impressed by that if I hadn't already made up my mind who the different drummer this week was, I'd be going there. Uh, Her name is Emily Virgin. She's a Democratic member of the Oklahoma House of Representatives, who's described herself as being adamantly opposed to the proposed legislation. Picking back up with the story, a story that was published Friday, uh, the 13th of March, by David Hudson, says this. This week, Virgin introduced an amendment to the bill. In brief, the amendment stated that if you are planning to refuse to serve LGBT people on religious grounds, then you must display a public notice to this effect. Quoting the amendment, Any person not wanting to participate in any of the activities set forth in subsection A of this section based on sexual orientation, gender identity, or race of either party to the marriage shall post notice of such refusal in a manner clearly visible to the public in all places of business, including websites. This notice may refer to the person's religious beliefs, but shall state specifically which couples the business does not serve by referring to a refusal based upon sexual orientation, gender identity, or race. On her Facebook page, Virgin explained the reasoning behind the amendment. Quoting Virgin, This would save same-sex couples the trouble and embarrassment of going into that business just to be turned away. Virgin came up with the amendment after consultation with LGBT advocacy group Freedom Oklahoma and the ACLU of Oklahoma. I just want to call out what a brilliant move this is. Because in many ways, it kind of connects to the pride that you might feel if you were somebody who was sort of Uh, of this mindset, right? The Pharisees were not ashamed of their worldview. In the gospel accounts where they found themselves in conflict with Jesus because of his outrage to people like tax collectors, they were proud of their point of view, adamant as a matter of fact. And this proposed amendment did nothing more than tap into that pride to say, if you are right and you seem so convinced you're right, you're willing to write under the laws of the state of Oklahoma, put it on the front door. Make sure that everyone knows how right you are And that you can actually take one step further. Not only do you not have to serve people at their their wedding, for example, you don't even have to interact with them enough to tell them no, because this will even give you one step more insulation against the evil that you see in the world in terms of you're not even going to have to have a face-to-face conversation with most of these people who are gay and lesbian, because the sign's going to stop them from coming through. Now, why would 
a common sense amendment like this torpedo the bill? Because the rumor is the bill is now stalled, not necessarily moving forward through Oklahoma's legislature. And the one thing I can think of that would be a good reason why it would stall is that if you were publicly declaring which customers you were unwilling to serve and had to do so by law, it might stop you. Because these people are not that interested in in being very forthright and open and transparent about what some might call their bigotry. They're more interested in doing it quietly, stealthily, and perhaps they don't even mind the idea of ruining somebody's wedding plan or throwing their wedding plans aside or publicly humiliating them. And this simply calls that out for the hypocrisy that it is. If you'd rather not have face-to-face conversations with gay people about their planned wedding, then don't. Simple as that. So, in some ways, this kind of ties back into the notion of public accommodation. If I had a record store that was in a tiny you know, square footage location and had to make a choice between removing some products, widening my aisles, changing the way my back room and the storefront interacted to try to make sure that there was enough room for someone with a wheelchair to shop in my store. If I needed to lower the upper row of CDs to where the, every CD could be touched and looked at by every customer, well, I might decide that maybe that's an expense I don't want to undertake. And couldn't I just put a big sign on the front door saying that if you're disabled, you're not welcome in here? I'm sure that if the issue of disability was as politically charged, or anywhere near as politically charged, as the issue of gay rights, then we might have this conversation going on right now, still, 20 years on after the ADA passed. So if I make a connection between this news of the day and how brilliant I think it is that simply calling for transparency, forcing people to publicly say that I'm going to refuse to do business with gay people, for example, is enough to stall a bill in a state that is committed to the idea of passing such a law, then maybe that gives me some hope that transparency in and of itself, well, it kind of, it's consistent with John's gospel, the third chapter, late in the chapter, somewhere around the 20th verse or so, where Jesus is talking about people loving darkness rather than light, because the light exposes their sinful and selfish motives. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. Visibility and invisibility is one of the key problems that we're facing. I think part of the reason that we're sort of in this um, reactionary situation with some of the more politically conservative states in the country today is because they are being forced to acknowledge something that's always been there, but that for most of my lifetime, or at least a big chunk of my lifetime, they've been able to ignore. And one of the challenges that I think that we face on the overall question of debilitation is that for a lot of human history, people would die at a much younger age, often from you know things as ordinary as uh, violence or starvation, before they would get to the point of having an end-of-life experience that looks like one of these sort of debilitating illnesses. Now, I'm not going to align and make a straight-up comparison between physical um, handicaps, uh, spinal injuries, things of that nature. And some of these end-of-life or, or mid-to-late sort-of-life diseases, 
things like um, cancer and ALS and Alzheimer's disease, because I think that's too simple. But the reality is that we're seeing more of it. And part of it is because we live in an information age where uh, people who are dealing with a particular family crisis are better able to call that out to friends who aren't strictly local and get some help and support in that. But I also think that as the average lifespan has increased in just my lifetime, as a matter of fact, that along with that, we're seeing more people who are coming down with these kinds of ailments. And it's forcing us to deal head on, really, with the question of debilitation. So I don't normally do this, but just hitting a straight up, you know, word definition approach to the concept, debilitate, being to make feeble or to weaken, coming from the Latin root of words roughly translating into weak or weakness or to weaken. And uh, the examples that I've seen here on dictionary.com, dictionary.reference.com, would include synonyms for deplete, innervate, devitalize. But really what I want to talk about is illness. Examples from the website include repeated bouts of an illness that take their toll, or pain disfigurement, uh, debilitation are common in the latter stages of some diseases, or generation by generation, volume by volume, his accession carried him closer to debilitation and corruption. So sort of a, a moral form of debilitation. I'm going to stick instead with a focus on disease, and really a fairly cliched notion that I don't know who to cite it to. It's probably so old that it's beyond our ability to know the first person who said it. But we're sort of born into the world in tears and diapers and very little ability to communicate. And people who successfully live to what we might call a ripe old age tend to go out the same way. Uh, I've mentioned this briefly in past episodes uh, early on in the first year, I imagine. But uh, it's a topic that I've tried to avoid, to be honest, for quite some time because it's a little bit painful. When I was talking in uh, inappropriate conversations, gone but not forgotten, dealing with my sister's death with cancer It was personal. It was hard to talk about. It was hard to get through even talking about it then. And I'm going to avoid that same emotional response, meaning that, again, at some point I may shift gears and head into a more objective conversation about the different drummer this week. Because I've known people who died of cancer. And our different drummer in in episode 42 was Tony Pucci, primarily because of his sister, her death from Lou Gehrig's disease, from ALS, and how he chose to respond to that, trying to find a constructive way to deal with it. I also have relatives who are dealing with Parkinson's disease, but rather than dealing with Parkinson's disease from the perspective of my family, I'm going to instead deal with that in the person of our different drummer. But the reality is, at some point, that takes away your ability to do the things that you intended to do. It changes the course of your life, if you will. It's hard for me to think about the things my older sister might have done if she hadn't been interrupted by multiple forms of cancer. And the fact that at a time in her life when she probably would have downshifted some personal goals and focused more on the growth and development of her recently born son, her entire life got consumed both by that refocusing, but also by the fight against cancer. And the fight against cancer in many ways interfering, even with the basic what I might call blocking and tackling of parenting, the core functions of parenting. I have some people in my family who had made an entire plan of life such that when they reached the age of retirement, they were going to travel. And that got interfered with, got interfered with with Alzheimer's disease. And part of the reason I want to talk about this topic at this time of year 
is because we're around the time of key dates in the life of that person who lived with, for more than a decade, Alzheimer's disease, and it took her life. The problem is that I'm normally strangely good with dates. Not necessarily just good dates, because I could understand someone saying, well, you, you might struggle with remembering dates and remembering the years associated with dates because this is bad news. And that's somewhat true. I, I have to do the math to think about how long ago my father died. Um, because in some ways, it doesn't seem as long ago as it truly was. It still feels more real than that. But in other ways, it's just bad news, and therefore I'm not, I'm not that attached to the year, I guess would be the way I'd put it. But I know that date by heart. And when I actually had to stop and, and look at the, the date of this particular death in the family, well, I literally had to stop and look. I had to go online and try to find an online copy of the obituary from what was the local newspaper in that city because I didn't have the date stuck in my head. Now, again, for a lot of people, this is normal. But for me, it's not. So that's sort of a fact of, is it a defense mechanism that makes me not remember some of the things as well as I'd want to? Maybe. But not remembering, I think, is really an important part of kind of understanding what happens in the case of Alzheimer's disease. Because the question of when was somebody gone, this notion of being gone but not forgotten, hearkening back to that first year episode of Inappropriate Conversations, when was somebody gone? Well, in the case of Alzheimer's disease, it can be a long time before a moment of death. There's certainly a point where the individual patient becomes non-communicative at all, in which case you're not really able to interact with them in the same way. But even before that, the levels of communication, the types of communication, even some personality shifts make it a completely different relationship. And of course, in this case, makes it impossible to travel overseas. So an entire retirement plan built along the idea of being able to go places and see things interrupted interrupted by a disease that's going to rob somebody of those memories, but also, also make it extremely difficult and dangerous to travel with someone who may at some point lose sight of the fact that they know you at all. So that sort of debilitation robs people in a way that, again, maybe, maybe 2,000 years ago, most people weren't living long enough to contract uh, an end-of-life situation of that sort. Or, depending on how you read scripture, if you did have somebody who had, had contracted something like Alzheimer's disease at a very young age, or even ALS, they would have been viewed as um, having some evil spirit or something. We just didn't have a vocabulary of medicine, a vocabulary of disease to help us understand how to deal with it. And even then, understanding how to deal with it is a real stretch. So you get to the point of a loved one and a family member disappearing from your life sooner than they should have because of a debilitating ail ailment. And the other one, having to get through that experience, survive it, if only emotionally and mentally, to get on the other side of it, only to be less than a decade away from dealing with Parkinson's disease instead, or something like that. To where the people, I have people who I think look at me a little bit oddly because at this middle age point of my life, I'm traveling more than I probably thought I would, more than I'd planned to do. But I'd be dishonest if I said that that shift in plan and that willing to to go on trips the second the kids were in college or out of college and having jobs to where the, that financial burden had been accounted for, maybe not fully paid off, but accounted for, uh, has a lot to do with the fact that I've seen people that I love and care for deeply who have taught me in the worst possible way the lesson of debilitation, of 
not waiting until later to make that trip to Hawaii. Because if you wait, you may not get to go. Not waiting until you know, you're ready to retire before you go to England and see a bunch of people that you've met online. Because, for one thing, maybe by the time you're retired and you're ready to make that trip, you've lost touch with them. And that window of opportunity you know, either has opened wider or perhaps closed or maybe even closed completely. But how do you make the trip if... Instead, you need to be you know, making a weekly visit to a rehabilitation center of some sort, dealing with any range of, of medical issues, some of which may fall under American with Disabilities Acts, or some of which may be more like what happens at the end of life. I've referred to ALS and Alzheimer's as being sort of a sinister coin, one sort of the flip side of the other. In one case, you... You can be, although not always, physically healthy for an extended period of time, but sort of lose certain elements of your mental capacity in a way that's truly tragic. In the other one, your body begins to fail completely on you. But again, in many cases, the mind is essentially left untouched, which does little more than make you a prisoner in a body that's no longer working. And so for me, when when I was able to uh, share thoughts and feelings and deal with the frustrations of this particular kind of debilitating disease and communicate with friends, I quickly found friends who are very dear to me online today, still, who either had the exact same experience I'd had with a grandmother or somebody else years before and could help me articulate my feelings in a way that was, was well, more intelligent than what I was able to come up with at the time. More sensitive, I suppose would be the way I'd word it, to the needs of family members who perhaps needed needed to hear a um, a more wise perspective than I was going to be capable of offering. But also in the, in the side of Lou Gehrig's disease, people who had a very comparable experience, again, the other side of the coin. And what happens is that whether it, it robs somebody of their memory or robs somebody of their mobility or in some element of both, it becomes a debilitation. Now, I'm not exactly sold on the notion of this being a good translation for the Latin word weakness, it seems like it's probably bigger than that. It seems more permanent, I guess, than that. It takes that circle of life and makes it more of an oval by turning the corner faster than it should and having, in some cases, a more direct and dramatic descent. And what it robs you of is the ability to go to Grandma and ask Grandma what she remembers about a specific period in time. But it also robs Grandma in some ways of being able to share wisdom and perspective about the times that we're in. My perspective was, on Alzheimer's in particular, that at some point there's almost a time travel element to it, where as someone's experiences and memory and, and in many ways sort of wisdom is robbed from them, they end up remembering things the way they would have remembered them decades ago. And that can be interesting. It can certainly be surreal, but it also could be very negative in the sense that you know people may, may lose sight of the fact that 18-year-olds are allowed to vote. Because if you're, if you're in a news cycle where uh, political elections are going on and the Rock the Vote campaign is kicking into gear and there's a lot of stories about reaching out to that 18- to 21-year-old age group, it could be very confusing for the person who's an Alzheimer's patient who may not even remember that an amendment was passed in the early 1970s giving 18-year-olds the right to vote. So... There, there's a time travel element to it, and that time travel element can actually can be fairly ugly. I mentioned in Inappropriate Conversations early on, I think maybe Episode 9, uh, talking about the, an overview of the decades was the, the title of it. 
and how frightening it would be to go back in time 40 or 50 years because we take for granted that we understand the world back then because we are we've come through it as a progression and we're in the fruit of some of those things for bad or for good but i think it would be very shocking to us if we walked into an office place for example 40 or 50 years ago and saw the way women were treated in that business or uh, just the rampant use of tobacco products or even the open use of alcohol inside the offices and meeting rooms and things of that nature. It would would throw us off our stride because we forget a lot of that stuff, not to mention the way um, races interacted. In fact, perhaps the most frightening thing for me might be that if you did that time travel, it wouldn't be as different as you'd hope it would be. That's always possible as well. Uh, I think that if I were to go to church 50 years ago, I would only probably see a handful fewer African-American church members than I have today. In fact, the church that we left behind a couple of years ago, the source of the conversation in the Walk the Earth podcast, that church had no black couples attendance whatsoever, meaning that if you went back 40 years earlier in the same church, the surprise might be that you might actually have some black couples attending then, but not now. So, It's a misnomer to say that going back in time would find you more progress. Sometimes it would oddly find you um, that there's more progress in the past than there is today. The funny thing is how that gets remembered, right? And so it's not just that somebody is aware of current events and current time and current paradigms, but remembering less and less of it. My experience, and maybe it's an isolated one, was that that person's memory also kind of looked like the 40s and 50s. It was like they were remembering it from that angle, which is an even bigger robbery in many ways. It's not just robbing them of their memory. It's almost robbing the person of time. So I've got a family member that I cared about deeply who we, we've said goodbye to, who was robbed of her memory on the way out the door over a long, long period of time. And I've got another one who's being robbed of the ability to travel, where mobility is becoming an open question. And Parkinson's disease is sort of, we see the face of it more publicly through Michael J. Fox, but we also got to remember that when you're looking at something like HIV and Magic Johnson, the basketball player, you're looking at a very best-case scenario. You're looking at a situation where money is not a problem and resources aren't an issue, and the public face of the fundraising for funds to try to raise money to find a cure for this is always going to be on the cutting edge, I would imagine, of treatment options and, and certainly you know, a driver behind the way we do research. It can be much more sudden for an average ordinary person. And even for somebody who's a celebrity, somebody who's incredibly wealthy and highly regarded, it can be very sudden. And I would describe that as the moment where Parkinson's disease stopped Linda Ronstadt from singing, and I want to refer to her now in this context of debilitation and what we lose when that sort of sudden debilitating illness turns that corner, naming her as our different drummer. Years ago, I made a list of potential different drummers, and I can honestly say without any doubt in my mind that Linda Ronstadt was not on that list. It had never crossed my mind. And in fact, when I began doing the research for this particular show, knowing that I pretty much penciled her in, and at first it was just penciling, partly because 
Parkinson's disease has stopped her from singing, and it's a very good example of debilitation. But I was very surprised on several fronts when I began looking at the biographical information about her and seeing how, frankly, she probably should have been a different drummer from the very first draft of such a list. Let's start, though, kind of at the front side with the Wikipedia article. Linda Maria Ronstadt, born in 1946 in Tucson, Arizona, is an American popular music singer. She has earned 11 Grammy Awards, three American Music Awards, two Academy of Country Music Awards, an Emmy Award, an ALMA Award, and numerous United States and internationally certified gold, platinum, and multi-platinum albums. She has also earned nominations for a Tony Award and a Golden Globe Award. And frankly, that first paragraph, I think, gives me a sense of why she makes sense as a different drummer. For, for a lot of my life, I have thought of her as simply being the soft side of either album-oriented rock or adult contemporary music. When I was growing up, there were two radio stations, just 100 basis points apart from each other on the dial. One in the 96s, one in the 97s on the FM dial. And you would hear Linda Ronstadt's music on either one of them. And I suppose if I'd gone to the country stations, which as a kid in high school I never did, I would have found her there as well. And this pretty much tells the story. If you just look at the awards that she's won, the range of things she's attempted, because we're not even looking at awards for sort of folk music here, or uh, what I would call um, the uh, traditional American songbook pop, pop music, but she's won awards for performing in folk, in rock, in country, on stage, on television, and in international musical forms. So she's got that range that you would expect from somebody who's going to be named a different drummer, and did so really very seamlessly. She did so by singing the songs she wanted to sing. So rather than an agent or a record label suggesting that she go and try different things and broaden her market and expand her range, frankly, every single time she chose to go into a genre that she had not previously been in, she had to fight the record label tooth and nail to get it done. And to me, that alone gives you a pretty good sense of why she's a different drummer. Another reason, though, that I might not have thought of her immediately is that I spent more time on the album-oriented rock station than on the adult contemporary music station, and she was probably more prevalent on the latter of the two. And the fact that she's probably sold 100 million albums worldwide, the estimates I've seen just for domestic alone is somewhere between 30 and 45 million albums, meaning that she sort of has the Steven Spielberg problem with me. Uh, you've been successful. You've got the box office to point to. You don't necessarily need to win a boatload of Oscars to be validated for your work. But the funny thing is, it's not necessarily easy to get an industry executive to point to a number and say, this is the number of albums she sold in America. And part of the reason for that difficulty is not just the range, but the collaborations. So let me jump over to the Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations. You can find that at uh, www.facebook.com slash inappropriateconversations, I believe, or some, some flavor of that. It's the page listed as a cause. And I did the same thing on Twitter. I can be found um, at IC underscore Greg on Twitter. It's not that common that I always try to post the same things in the same places. In fact, it's far more common that I'm going to retweet things others have said that are interesting to me on Twitter more than write. And when I post things on Facebook, it's a little bit unusual that I would turn around and share the exact same article, unless I can retweet it on Twitter. But in this case, I really made an effort to put the same uh, music clips, the same YouTube clips, in both places. Because I wanted to provide, before I even got to the point of recording, a sense of range. 
a sense of the number of things that Linda Ronstadt has done, including many things she's done that are not actually under her name. And the first one that just stopped me in my tracks, which I, if I knew about it, I'd forgotten about it. I heard about it on an NPR interview about a year and a half ago. So I got different drummer Linda Ronstadt in conversation with different drummer Terry Gross, you know, about a year and a half ago. And among the clips of music that Terry Gross shared in introducing Linda Ronstadt and kind of covering some biographical material, because the point of the interview, which I've listened to three times now, and I'm not taking it off my player, I intend to listen to it again in the next year or two, was to give a sense of the fact that this career has suddenly stopped due to a debilitating illness. So she was kind of walking through the history of her career. And the first clip she played, I believe, was from Stone Ponies. Linda Ronstadt was the lead singer, or, well, actually not even the lead, one of three singers, I think, in this folk trio from the 60s called Stone Ponies. And one of the songs is called Different Drum. So I'm naming a different drummer with a song called Different Drum. And the funny thing is, if I'd heard the song before, it wouldn't have resonated with me because it's not using different drum necessarily in the same sense that I'm I'm using. At the time, late 60s, a female vocal-led song, singing a song to a male suitor, saying, because you want to tie down and get married, I'm not interested. We're, on, we're marching to a different drum because mine is about being free and exploring life and sexuality, and yours is about the traditional tying down and getting married. And today, that doesn't seem like an odd point of view for a female to share, either in poetry or in music, but in the late 60s, it probably was fairly cutting edge. So the first clip I shared out there is Different Drum. The second one is a Philip Glass song called Freezing. I'll come back to that in a minute, but the interesting thing here is, again, hard to count the sales of albums that could be credited to Linda Ronstadt's work, because in this case, this was not her album. It's a Philip Glass album. The next one I shared similarly. It's an Anne Savoy album. It's actually listed as Anne Savoy and Linda Ronstadt together on the album cover I'm looking at, or maybe just the single from it. A Do False Heart is the name of it, and it explores a lot of Cajun-themed music. So we've gone from pop, or folk pop, to classical music in Philip Glass, to Cajun music. Then I shared a complete concert uh, from her uh, Canciones de Mi Padre uh, album. So these are Mexican traditional music, Mexican roots music. Then I shared country, long, long time, uh, probably a very well-known country song, And for this one, I have the song Long, Long Time on my player because of the Mindy McCready version. Didn't see any reason to have two versions of the same song, at least not this song on my player. And the Mindy McCready version is actually in many ways more emotionally ironic and impactful because of her recent death. I follow that up if you're just following the clips in the chronological order I place them with a uh, Nelson Riddle Orchestra and Linda Ronstadt complete concert. I'm assuming this was probably a PBS concert And again, this was her period of time of translating the, what we might call easy listening, and the traditional American songbook with a full orchestra, and hitting an entire generation of people who may not have been interested in the Linda Ronstadt producing songs like You're No Good and That'll Be The Day and Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me. Uh, This was reaching a brand new audience with very old and traditional songs. The eight and a half minutes or so that Glenn Frey speaks to induct Linda Ronstadt into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame just last year is well worth the time. On the post I put up for that, I also shared her recording of Desperado, because it's really hard to talk about Linda Ronstadt and not talk about the Eagles at the same time. Probably the first musical output many of us heard from the Eagles was their backing of Linda Ronstadt on her self-titled album. And from there, the Eagles went on to, of course, 
put their own music out under their own label. And two albums in, the Eagles recorded Desperado. In that speech, Fry gives credit to Ronstadt for doing her cover version of the title track of Desperado and how important that was to bring attention to the band and the, the album they put out just a couple of months sooner. And finally, I wasn't trying to put these posts onto Facebook in order of importance, but I did hit a big three at the end. Girls Talk, from her Mad Love album, a period where she was trying to get more contemporary, meaning back then new wave, in her music style. Uh, not a successful period compared to the rest of her work, but really, it's the one album, that Mad Love album, is the one album from her that I would give up last. If I had to weed out the two or three Linda Ronstadt CDs or tapes I've got, that's the one that I'm keeping, and her version of Girls Talk is my favorite moment on that. It ties into another relatively recent different drummer, because it was Elvis Costello's song, and I frankly heard her interpretation first, before I heard the original, because Costello didn't put Girls Talk out on what we might call a regular studio release. It was actually put out originally from him on a Rarities album of sorts. Her trio work with Dolly Parton and Emmylou Harris, uh, somewhat legendary, especially in country and Americana folk circles. I shared a David Letterman clip called After the Gold Rush, and I did so whenever possible. I picked live versions because Ronstadt was asked near the end of the interview on Fresh Air years ago, if she still listened to music. And I thought that was a weird question to ask, but that's part of the reason that makes Fresh Air to me an interesting show. Weird questions get asked. Because it would be hard to imagine somebody who had committed her entire life to the music industry and performed in so many different genres. By the way, this list I'm putting out there doesn't even include the Paul Simon Graceland album and Under African Skies, where she not only appears as a harmony vocalist, but an entire verse was written about her. But it's that range, right? And so uh, Terry Gross asked her if she still listened to music, and she said, yeah, of course she did. That music was, in many ways, her life. But that she much preferred to listen to live music than studio albums. Because back when she was working in, in the music industry, even the studio recordings were pretty much just live versions. I'm reminded of the Michael Franks album, The Art of Tea, where Franks was talking once in interviews about the difference between those early recordings on Warner Brothers and some of the later albums, the ones that I would have heard as new releases from him. And back then, Franks would get together with Joe Sample as a keyboard player and co-arranger and a few other band members, and they would just hit the record button, play live in the studio. This is not to say that they wouldn't do more than one take, but the, the, live, the studio albums that came out back then were probably live in studio in terms of the recording technique. And Ronstadt shared that, yeah, that was pretty much her early experiences on most of her original albums were that way. You weren't having the musicians play and then capturing and recording that and having her come along later and sing over it. Some of the trio recordings were different, though, because it wasn't always possible to get Dolly Parton in the same room with Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt. So catching them all in the same place at the same time for the Letterman show, really pretty impactful. The other thing Ronstadt shared in that interview that really stopped me in my tracks was a reminder that when she was a kid and she was hearing these Mexican songs that she would later record on more than one album under the uh, songs of her father, songs of her grandfather, really, kind of era, or even the standards that she did with Nelson Riddle, she would have heard those songs before. But when she was a child, she would not have heard those songs on an album or on a reel-to-reel tape. She would have heard those songs being performed Live in the living room, I guess would be the way I would word it. And it made me think back to my childhood a little bit, because the parties that she was describing, the dinner, the family gatherings that she was describing, resonated with me. 
It wasn't unusual for there to be a point in a Thanksgiving weekend where people would gather around the piano and listen to people play, listen to people sing, and sing along. If I was going to learn the lyrics to something like Both Sides Now by Joni Mitchell, I wasn't going to learn those lyrics by hearing Both Sides Now from a you know, Judy Collins album or a Joan Baez album or Joni Mitchell, certainly not that. No, I would have heard them for the first time being sung by either my mother or my sister um, or friends of the family around a piano where somebody was using the sheet music to recreate the experience of taking in the song. So when Ronstadt was talking about when she was growing up, you experienced music by listening to it live. She literally meant listening to it live because someone you know is in your home with a guitar or a piano, and you are singing along. Very impactful. The other thing about it is that, you know, near the end of her career, I guess I'll jump to the all-media guide. In the late 1980s, I guess it was, she really had a huge, huge turnaround. At the end of 1986, Ronstadt returned to contemporary pop. This is the All Media Guide article by Stephen Thomas Erlewine. She returned to contemporary pop, uh, recording somewhere out there, the theme to the animated movie An American Tale, in a duet with James Ingram. The single became a number two hit. She also returned to her country roots in 1987, recording the trio album with Pardon and Harris. That same year, Ronstadt recorded Cancioni's Dime Padre, a set of traditional Mexican songs that became a surprise hit. And two years later, she recorded Cry Like a Rainstorm, How Like the Wind, her first contemporary pop album since 1982's Get Closer, featuring four duets with Aaron Neville, including the number two hit Don't Know Much. The album sold over two million copies. True Confessions time. As I go to the music menu on my MP3 player, I have three songs by Linda Ronstadt that I carry with me. Three. Girls Talk, I mentioned before. The song uh, All My Life, one of the duets with Aaron Neville from Cry Like a Rainstorm. I don't have Don't Know Much. I don't see this as a problem I need to fix. That was a song that was so readily available on radio and at the time MTV that you didn't really need to seek it out. But my favorite song from that Cry Like a Rainstorm album, and perhaps one of my favorite songs from Linda Ronstadt's entire career, was I think the album opener from that album called Still Within the Sound of My Voice. I said on Facebook and Twitter, I wouldn't be surprised if I've shared this before. It's my favorite from this Aaron Neville duets period of her career, but this is the one where she's a solo vocalist. And the song is literally that, that sense of longing, that sense of regret, that question of, of time gone by, possible world theory, missed paths, uh, the people that you've lost contact with, people who are gone but not forgotten. If you're still within the sound of my voice... I just want you to know that you always made me rejoice. So, the sad news here on the question of debilitation is people like Ronstadt being robbed from us in many ways. Because I don't think there's any way to predict what she might do next. She wasn't really recording in an era where her awareness of rap would have led her to move in a hip-hop direction. So we, we don't have any sense of what that might be. But I can tell you that when she went to the record label and said, I want to record with Nelson Riddle and do a series of American standards, she had to fight tooth and nail to make that happen. None of them expected it to be a Grammy-winning effort, a million-dollar seller. They didn't expect the impact of exposing her music that way to an entire generation who perhaps had ignored her would open up additional album sales because she was all along recording sort of standards of the 50s and 60s anyway. Most of her 70s recordings were sprinkled in with classic rock hits. That'll be the day, for example. Or I Will Always Love You, 
by Dolly Parton. As I get close to wrapping up the different drummer segment, let me quote Ronstadt from the Wikipedia article. I now realize I was taking a tremendous risk, and that Joe Smith, the head of Electra Records, and strongly opposed, was looking out for himself and for me. When it became apparent I wouldn't change my mind, he said, I love Nelson so much, can I please come to the sessions? And I said yes. When the albums were successful, Joe congratulated me, and I never said I told you so. Perhaps that says more about Ronstadt than anything else that I can say, because I don't think I'm the kind of person who could resist the opportunity there to say I told you so. But instead, by not spending the emotional capital then, she was able once again to persuade the record label a couple years later to let her release an album of Mexican folk recordings, which became the best-selling albums in Mexican roots music in the history of the broad American landscape. These were albums which, you know, I don't think any of us expected that they would sell anywhere near as well as a traditional rock album, but they sold better than anything else of their type. Ronstadt brought an audience to music that she loved and remembered from her childhood that many of the people hearing the music had never heard before. We live in an era where Kanye West fans on social media kind of expose how the internet has sort of made the world a little bit smaller, but also have made our, our vision and perspective a little bit smaller. That there really are Kanye West fans out there who don't know who Paul McCartney is, who've never heard of the Beatles before. And who think that this, this old guy named McCartney appearing on stage with Kanye West is really a great thing Kanye's doing to help that other guy out. As opposed to the sort of the notoriety being the other way around. Which one truly in the history of music is a bigger name and a bigger figure and has greater influence? And what Ronstadt was doing was saying, hey, if there's people who've never heard of Nelson Riddle before, I'm more than happy to be a part of introducing them to him and broadening that audience. And likewise, I think the songs that her grandfather would have sung, that she might have heard her grandfather sing in trips to Mexico growing up, really would have been an interesting thing for uh, Terry Gross to ask her, which I don't think she did. Does she take a lot of pride in the fact that the things that she grew up loving the most have now been heard by millions of people who otherwise wouldn't have heard these songs in any other way. Previously on Starbase 66. I saw another news report where it started off with, we were promised flying cars. Where are flying cars? And, you know, it was amusing for a little while, and now I'm just really sick of it. Yeah, most people got it wrong. They thought that the future we were heading towards was going to be one like Star Trek, where energy was free and plentiful and readily available. However, our technology went a different route, and now we have computers far more powerful than anything that, that NASA put on a spaceship sitting in our pockets taking phone calls. Instead of being an energy revolution, it was an information revolution and a miniaturization revolution. And, you know, the fact that we can do this podcast now talking, you know, all across the, the countries, that's what the future we're living in now. We're not getting fucking flying cars. Give it up. Listen to Starbase 66, the international Star Trek and genre fiction podcast on simplysyndicated.com, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I can't accuse this particular inappropriate conversation of having any insights to offer. 
the, the main theme is really simple. There's a circle of life. We come out of it as unable to support ourselves as we come into it, if we're lucky enough to live that long. And disease is perhaps the number one thing which has crept in to cut things short. And that notion of debilitation is something we all need to be aware of. If there is somebody you want to reach out to that you've not reached out to and you think that there's always going to be a tomorrow, there's not. I mentioned Paul McCartney a minute ago. He's got a song called This One, which I think is an album that he worked on in close collaboration with Elvis Costello. I think it's the Flowers in the Dirt album. I'm going from memory here. But in the song This One, the lyric is basically, if I'm always waiting for a better moment to come along, there's never going to be a better moment than this one. Now is the time. Because you may not be able to travel later. You may not be able to tell the grandkids the story of what it was like to grow up right after the Depression and during a world war and in the uh, explosive period of, of economic and social change in the 1950s if you don't tell your grandkids now. And in fact, if the disease is of an Alzheimer's variety, by the time you get around to, to sharing those insights and those stories, it might be skewed by the way your memories have been twisted and robbed from you. Now is the time, because on the other side of now, at some point, there is going to be a debilitation. It might be as sudden as death, or it might be as slow as a multi-decade decline to Alzheimer's disease. I don't want this to be bad news. I want us to cherish the memory of the 100 million album sales that Linda Ronstadt's contribution to music provided, as opposed to simply mourning the fact that she's never going to sing again, because the muscle control that you lose in that disease hit her voice sooner than you'd want it to. It's also hit her legs. She's got that same sort of inability to move around. Walking is a challenge for her. And I can tell you that walking is a challenge for some of my older relatives as well, for the exact same reason. So if you don't go where you want to go when you can, you might not be able to get there later. And if there's any lesson that we can learn from the older generation... That may be one of them. That might actually be in an era where more people die from debilitating illness than 2,000 years ago, when people died much younger and much more suddenly. There's a lesson to take from that. It's a lesson that I'm beginning to take to heart because I had taken Linda Ronstadt for granted. But you know what? I'm pretty sure I've taken my in-laws for granted as well. And that's a problem. That's a problem I'm going to have to deal with. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I do answer emails directly and only really share a feedback show about once a year, so don't hesitate to write, and, and trust me, I'll, I will try to get back to you. I also can be reached via the uh, website, inappropriateconversations.org is a place where every past show of Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth can be found. When those shows are posted, comments are enabled there. And as I've already mentioned, you can contact the show or see the things I'm reading and listening to and thinking about via both Facebook and Twitter. Last but not least, Inappropriate Conversations is on Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like to listen to podcasts on the go, Stitcher is a really good option. And SoundCloud, I've uh, ignored for a little while, but I'm going to get back to it soon in terms of pasting clips from the oldest shows so that there's a bit of a, of a hint from an audio perspective about what the content of that particular podcast years and years ago truly was. Thanks for listening.